0: The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is brought to you in part by
1: the Pop Insider. The Pop Insider has all the latest in news, merch reviews, and other geeky goodness. Whether you're a wizard, a Sith Lord, or a superhero, fuel your fandom at thepopinsider.com.
2: Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. Tad Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking.
1: Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part are you? Join Weebie Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world! Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is Extreme Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced, it cannot be stopped, and it is the only free voice left. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It's the Dashing Duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And we're being joined by a legend. Um, We've seen him in many films as an actor. Uh, We also know him as a writer, uh, most famously for the movie Jaws and Jaws 2. Uh, He was also a co-writer on the screenplay The Jerk. Um, And he's got a great book out there, which admittedly I have not read yet, but it's on my list. I will be getting it within the next month for sure. Um, and it's called the Jaws Log. And uh, we are talking with Carl Gottlieb. How's everyone doing tonight?
0: Pretty good, pretty good, all things considered. I mean, you know, they, these are odd times. It's not like anything else any of us has ever lived through. So That's we're all true. kind of feeling our way. <clears throat> so we're, kinda, you know, a bunch of blind people in the dark fumbling toward whatever light there is. Okay? Yeah. And it's, it's
1: not easy. Well, you, you gave us the challenge in a roundabout way before show when we were talking to try and come up with questions you haven't been asked before, and we're we're going to see how we do. We may get we may get one or two in, um, right.
0: but uh, obviously, I, I'm going to assume that you did look at the IMDb listing and you've done a little bit of homework, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm
1: not a stranger to you. No, no, you weren't. A, you weren't a stranger to us beforehand either. <laughs>
0: um,
1: obviously, with the Jaws log, it's a documentation of what you did with the movie, and there's been a couple different um, updates to it with different anniversary years, uh, especially with the current rendition uh, being the 45th anniversary. You know, covering the 45th anniversary. W- how did you come up with the idea of this movie that we have come to know as Jaws?
0: Well, I didn't come up with the idea. It was a very success. it was a best selling novel by Peter Bench first. Okay. And Zanuck and Brown, David, uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who are a producing team who produced The Sting, among other things, uh, they optioned the novel for the screen and then convinced Universal Studios to buy it for them and they would produce it. And the new young director named Steven Spielberg was interested in the script, so he took it under his wing. He asked me to be an actor in. In the movie uh, because he and I had a history of creating things together. We had the same agent. We sold, tried to pitch some movie ideas back in early in 74. Um, and uh, we could never sell a script because our agent insisted that uh, if we sold something, uh, I would write it and Stephen would be locked in to direct. And people were okay with me writing it, but nobody wanted to take a chance on a new director because at that time Stephen mm-hmm. had just done uh, a very prestigious television movie called Duel. Yeah. And then uh, Sugarland Express was uh, debuted but didn't was not a commercial success so right. Stephen needed a popcorn movie and uh, Jaws seemed to be it and he asked you to be in it and work with uh, uh, he was going to have a large number of uh, amateur actors, you know, the locals. He not, wasn't going to bring a big cast from Hollywood, so there was going to be a lot of locals who would be kind of improvising, and that was, I came from an improvising tradition. So that's, uh, I, I would help with that. And then he sent me the script and said, what do you think of this? So I actually he wrote a note on the cover of the script that said, eviscerate it. <laughs> Which I did. I wrote a lengthy memo about everything I thought was wrong or right, and I, I, I made a tremendous mistake, and I, and I was exactly right. So I was 100%. I was one hundred eighty degrees. Um, my mistake was I, I wrote: Does the girl who has sex at the opening of the movie have to die? Is that such a horror movie cliche? You know, mm. naked teenager, sex, death. You know, it's, it's that's how you get killed in a teenage horror movie. If you have sex, right. um, uh, but I, I had no idea how Steven would shoot it, which was one of the great death scenes in movies, yes. one of the great horror scenes in, in all, of all time, and it and starts the movie off on a you know. On a really exciting note so that's that's that that was my mistake On the plus side, I remember writing in 1974, before the movie was even, before the script even existed, well, before the final, before we got the green light, I wrote, if we do our jobs right, I was talking about me as a writer and Steven as a director, if we do our jobs right, people will feel about going into the ocean the way they felt about going to take a shower after Psycho. And in, in the AFI 100 top horror films of all time, Psycho is number one, and John is number two so we're we're in that noble tradition and for 45 years whenever I've met anybody and I tell them I worked on that on the fish what I now am calling the fish movie uh, when I tell them I worked on the fish movie they go oh my god you know after I saw that I didn't go in the water I didn't go swimming I didn't go to the lake I didn't Mm -hmm. go to the stream you know I didn't go to the swimming hole I didn't go to the pool You know, everybody had a story about how they avoided deep water after that
1: Wow. (laughs) Uh, of course I I think it's great you bring up the, uh, the old Opening sequence where the the teenager gets killed in the in the ocean because Stephen parried that in, in one of his own films with nineteen forty
0: one same actress
1: and it was a great parody it, and I I, and I loved it I thought it was great that he was it was
0: it was it was, uh, it, was it, sh- it was a shame about nineteen forty one because you know Stephen had an enormous palette and unlimited resources but he 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 wasn't a comedy director he wasn't you know uh, I mean, he knows where laughs are but. Uh, Uh, his hits are not distinguished by the comic performances. Mm -hmm.
1: Still one of my favorite films of his though. 41? I love 41. Yeah. Ned Beatty was great. Do not do this. (laughs) Do not load ammo here. (laughs) So um, go ahead, Derek. I know you got the question.
2: Well, I was going to say if we're talking about comedy, I would have to say that The Jerk ranks up as as definitely in my top three favorite films, comedy films of all time. If I was a Jeopardy. I love that movie.
0: If I was a Jeopardy category, it would be his hits begin with a J. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: a good one that is yeah. a good one uh, I so didn't think of that. that so you yeah. so you writers over at jeopardy we just gave you a topic idea yeah <laughs> um if this shows up within the next six months on jeopardy we know they're listening <laughs> yeah. um so i
0: guess i want to go back a little bit how did you and Steven meet um he was a new kid in town uh my agent at that time was a guy named mike met Boy, who was at uh, CMA, um, or CAA, one of those alphabet agencies. Anyway, Mike Medavoy was a very forward-thinking agent. Uh, he was very early into the idea of um, packaging. He would put his clients together. And in 68 or 69, when I got to LA, Mike signed me to the agency. But he also signed Steven Spielberg and John Milius and Carol Eastman and Michelangelo Antonioni and, and half a dozen have a dozen other pretty amazing talents and he he thought that Stephen and I would be a good match and Stephen was a new kid in town he was he'd, he had just gotten his uh contract directing job at universal uh, Sheinberg took him under his wing and, and uh, gave him you know a contract when he was like 24 25 years old so he was directing network television like you know, he did like a student he did like his his little student film an independent film and on the strength of that film got signed to universal Universal as a contract director, where they assigned him, you know, Joan Crawford and Night Gallery, they assigned him Peter Falk and Columbo, they, you know, he started doing you know, all the Universal shows on film and, and directing. And um, so we, we knew each other socially, and uh, I had a house in those days uh, like right almost in the center of Hollywood, you know, halfway between Laurel Canyon on the west and the recording studios and the studios in Hollywood proper on the east, I was like smack in the middle. So if you lived in Laurel Canyon and were you going to work at Paramount, you drove past my house. If you were in Laurel Canyon and you were going to Wally Hyder's recording or Western Sound, you drove by my house. <laughs> so, and my wife and I had a uh, at that time we were just living together, but we later got married but as a couple. We kind of had an open house, I guess you would call it like a salon in the old days, where creative people would were free to stop by. I would uh, I would people were new in town, they'd find their way to our guest you know to our extra. Bedroom, if they needed a place to stay. Uh, so, uh, so, so we always had a house full of interesting people, and Stephen was one of them. Uh, and he, and I the thing I remember about him at that time was that he he loved film, and he would go anywhere to expand his film horizon. I mean, if they were if some filmmaker friend of mine was showing an experimental movie on a sheet in his house in the Laurel Canyon, Stephen would be there. Oh wow! Uh, if if there was you know a one time preview of something playing at the obscure repertory theater or somewhere uh, we'd go we'd go to see it and, and, and Stephen would go anywhere to see something new and, uh, and, and you know there was so we, we were pals we, we were hanging out together you know we, we would work together we try to write some movies together so and I acted in a couple of his movies that he directed for television just uh, a date player, but I was you know doing little improvised parts. So you know he knew how I worked. I knew how he worked. And then uh, he went off to do Sugarland Express, and was I? I think I was doing a, a television series at that time. Uh, yeah, I think I was doing The Odd Couple. a Story editor on The Odd Couple on ABC with Tony Randall and oh, Jack. Nice. Uh, yep. So you know I was in television with the, you know waiting to get it get my break in features. Uh, Stephen was in television doing the same thing, waiting for his feature break. He was hoping that Sugarland would be it, but it wasn't. It was beautifully received. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker called it the most astonishing debut film since Citizen Kane, which, you know, is reason to celebrate. But at the box office, the picture died. Nobody wanted to see Goldie Hawn's boyfriend get killed, which is how that movie ends. So Stephen needed a popcorn movie. So when he saw the script for Jaws, he had enough of an audience sense to know that, This would be at worst a popular summer movie. Right. So he committed to it and I came along.
1: So whose idea was it, yours or Steven's, to do the less is more with Bruce?
0: That was if if you uh, have watched any of the Blu-ray editions of the movie with the additional elements, you know, additional materials. Right. Um, there was uh, uh, there's one of them was called the shark. The shark is still working. Uh, the, the problem was we had a mechanical shark that was life-size. This was before CGI, before optical effects. You know, we built a shark that was the size that was 25 feet long and weighed three tons, yep. just like just like Bruce. Right. And that posed to technical difficulties that were unimaginable. It had never been, and we were you know, kind of rushed to get it all together, to shoot it in time to get it out for summer of 75. So in 74, there was a scramble to get the thing built. And then it had to be transported to Martha's Vineyard to the location. It had to be put in salt water and it had never been tested in salt water. It had only been tested in fresh water and salt oh. water mm. corrodes things and screws yeah. up electric contacts. So the, the, the fish was not working as expected. So we had to figure out ways to shoot around it. And Stephen and I were both fans of a movie called The Thing. Yes. That Howard produced. Uh, That's yes. a horror movie about it. A creature in a uh, Arctic uh, ice station. Love that film. Yeah. And in that mm. film, you don't see The Thing until like 50 minutes into the movie. Yeah. You know, minutes into a 70-minute movie. You know, you know, you there's a lot of signs of its presence, but you never see it actually until you have to. So we said, okay, we could hold back like they did on on the thing. We can show the effects of the shark. We can show, you know, we'll show as much as we can and the audience will have to fill in the gaps themselves, which, which they did. And in effect... What well, was a technical limitation forced us to be creative with story elements so that we keep the suspense running high. You know, for a horror film, there's not that many deaths, Jaws, you know, four or five right. people. The body body's so, pretty yeah. low for a horror film. So,
1: but, um, but it's the stress and anxiety to to getting to see what the creature is. Yes. That makes it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yes.
2: I definitely think that made it a better, a better film yeah. than if you had been able to actually show the shark as much as you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no it,
0: it, it, like everything else, there was a whole series of happy accidents and coincidences that, uh, you know, worked in our favor and forced us to be more creative and forced uh, Verna Fields to be the best editor she could be. And she won an Academy Award for cutting that picture. Honest. And Fox Williams, who was not yet famous, who had wrote a great score. So, you know, it was, uh, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, as they used to say about Bayer Aspirin, you know, a combination of medically proven ingredients. So <laughs> Jaws has combination of our ingredients.
1: We, uh, we interviewed, I think it was either last fall or right after the first of the year, um, a group out of Massachusetts uh, for a f- independent film called, uh, what was it, Animal Among Us? Oh, yeah, and they said they they did the same thing and was inspired by by Jaws to do the less is more for mm-hmm. for their film and it works, and I think with some of the independent films that we have seen before we've had people on the whole that I have personally liked the films more. If there's the less is more mentality behind it, because I think that's what makes it more suspenseful and, yeah. and makes it a better horror film. Well,
0: oh you know, sure,
2: yeah,
1: I mean that's what
2: made like Alien better and movies like that. And,
0: mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, the the uh, uh, the first Alien, you know, the, the the first creature reveal is not even the senior Alien; it's the, it's the, it's the baby Alien. Yep, And right, it's, it's yeah. terrifying. Its appearance yeah. comes from comes from out of nowhere. You know, it's, it's all the guy sudden the guy is like choking or this thing bursts out of his chest yeah nobody nobody expected that that's that's the essence of good horror movies you just you surprise the audience with, you know, the, basically you're doing the old magician's trick. You're saying, look over here. And then over here, something horrible appears. Yeah. Yep, in a badly directed horror movie, you can always tell because uh, the cameraman is subtly, like if, if, if I was going to be pounced on by a tiger, like in the next minute and a half, and it would be a shock moment. As a viewer, you would see the camera kind of framing me this way. <laughs> yeah. Take room yeah. over here for tiger, you know. So the cameraman would be anti. But that's a badly directed movie.
1: Yeah. So w- at what point did you get the inspiration to do the Jaws log? Was it as you were doing
0: the movie? or No. no what happened was we, we finished the movie in the fall of 74. In the winter of 74 and 75, Verna Fields was cutting it. I think the first paid preview was in April of 74. But there was a notion, you've got to remember in those days, um, cross promotion and marketing were still in their infancy, Yeah, mm. which enabled George Lucas to hang on to the merchandising rights for Star Wars, as we right. all know, yep. well, nobody nobody knew to include those in the deal. It's the last time that ever happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but, uh, but at that time, you know, merchandising consisted of you know, t-shirts and coffee mugs and maybe a lunchbox, you know, with the pictures the title on it. They sell it in the in gift shop at epcot you know that that, that, yep, was, yep. that was that was the extent of promotion and universal being a forward-thinking studio said, so, you know we should get into more publishing promotions so let's let's put out a book about the making of jaws we have so we have some time before the picture's released so we'll do a like a coffee table book in three parts know, the director's point of view, the producer's point of view, and the novelist's point of view. So, and Stephen asked me, because he was busy uh, um, prepping, finishing Jaws, and starting to prep Close Encounters, um, Stephen said, you know, would you ghost write my third of it, you know, the director's third? You were there with me, we shared a house, you know, you know everything I know, would you write my my third of it? So I said, yeah, okay. And then Zanuck and Brown got too busy to write their third of it, Peter Benchley got too busy to write his third of it, so the guy in charge of publishing at Universal said "Well, we, we can sell this book I mean you know, but uh, you're going to have to write it by yourself well I was and luckily you know because I had been there and was on the set was on location was on the picture from its earliest inception from you know I was like one of the first people hired Joe Alves was the first person hired even before Stephen yeah. and then you know then me so um, I had been present for all the you know pre-production decisions that I was on the island and in the movie and sharing a house with Stephen, so there was nothing that was a secret to me because I saw everything. And the only thing I had to do was to catch up, was to interview the people who I hadn't had any one-on-one contact with. And that would have been uh, uh, Lynn Murphy, who was a skipper of the boat, um, Ron and Valerie Taylor, who shot the second unit shark footage in Australia, um, Carl Rizzo, who was the, the stuntman, the, the little person yeah. yep. who did the stunt who doubled uh, Dreyfus and the shark stunts. So so I went out with my notebook and I interviewed all those people and then in April and May of 75, I went off and wrote the book and sent it off to the publisher. And it was published uh, the week after the movie. The movie came out, I think, June 17th. And my book came out July 6th. Oh, wow. And and sold a couple million copies. The only money I made from Jaws was from the book. I got paid shit for writing it and acting it.
2: Oh, Um, really?
1: uh, That
0: that sucks. It's it's good uh, that the book's doing well, though. Oh, yeah. Zanuck and Brown were stingy bastards. They they were very very tight with a dollar.
1: Mm. Mm. To, I don't that's think that's the point first point time point. we've heard that. Wait, really? Wait, well, not not about them, but with. Other people, other project on it. Yeah, we're not getting a lot because the the book, the, the novelists are getting <laughs> so stingy, and, and we and we hear about it though too with uh, J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter properties mm-hmm. that she is mm-hmm. so tight with everything, uh, and that's part of the reason why Disney doesn't have Harry Potter in the parks and it went mm-hmm. to Universal because even though Disney was able to do everything she wanted, it wasn't how she envisioned it so she just went elsewhere where she could get more control and and take more control
0: yeah well that's, uh, in the long run most artists what they want is control yeah. I mean in, in movies in television they are intensely collaborative mediums. You depend on a lot of people to work together to get something done.
2: Mm, right.
0: And uh, some people are comfortable with collaboration. I'm, I'm happy with collaboration. I've been collaborating all my life. I've worked, you know, I took that grammar school report card line, you know, works and plays well with others. Mm-hmm. I took that very seriously. I, I, <laughs> I like to play well with others. And the result is I've had a, a great career with a lot of great yeah. partners. All yeah all those, all those. Now, you were, you were telling
1: us before before we start recording that um, even though it's on hold the Jaws log is coming to Broadway off Broadway coming to a Broadway, theater
0: coming to a theater it's been optioned by a composer lyricist team who have done Broadway before and they see it as a musical for Broadway mm. with actors playing Carl Gottlieb and Steven Spielberg and Verna Fields and Joe Alves but this and, is wild and, about the difficulty of making this movie and the, the 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 Broadway show is called Bruce. Oh, that's going to be great. Uh, And if you're in the Pacific Northwest, it's probably going to be at the Seattle Rep in uh, 2021. And then, uh, you know, regional theater tryout of the script and and show. And then also in... New York metropolitan area before it gets to Broadway. It'll probably be at the paper mill playhouse in New Jersey okay. and maybe some other regional theaters. And, uh, but right now it's all on hold. Right. Cause you can't put people in the same room.
1: Yeah. Actors equity has got things shut down. Uh, he's yeah, no, IOTC. got things shut down because they're, they're backing equity and all that. So yeah.
0: So, so. until, uh, until the pandemic eases, it's probably going to be two years before people sit next to each other in a theater again. Yeah. So, when, quite
1: possibly. Yeah. How did this whole idea of turning your book into a musical? How was that presented to you?
0: Well, over the years, people have seen the dra- the dramatic because of the the story of how the movie was made. In many ways, is as interesting as the movie. Yes. And when you much so. Read the book. You'll see that. So, since that story of how the movie was made interests a lot of people. Uh, it, it has been optioned a couple of times by people who paid for the opportunity to get a script prepared or find some backers and put it together, and uh, nobody was successful. And like J.K. Rowling, Steven Spielberg, although he has no contractual rights over Jaws because he, he didn't have any clout when he made the movie, Universal MCA is very respectful of his wishes yes. when it comes to the fish movie, and they want to maintain a relationship with Stephen, so uh, they'll do whatever he wants I mean to this day his company Amblin has offices on the Universal lot that the Universal pays for oh wow yeah, and uh, so so you know and this is one of the reasons uh, you, you never hear any talk any credible talk about a remake of Jaws I mean that's a movie they're not going to make another time it's like Casablanca you know why you when you get it right the first time right why, why, why fuck Around you know, right? I mean, Jaws two was an honorable sequel. It made a lot of money. It was you know, it, uh, it did all right. Jaws three was less successful. And to tell you the truth, I've never seen Jaws four. I had nothing to do with it. And Michael Caine has never seen it either. I don't think I've seen Jaws four.
2: Oh, I've you're not alone. Seen it? You're not missing anything. I think I, I think I
1: stopped after three. Yeah, most people did. But Jaws
2: yeah, four,
0: yeah, four was rough. Yeah,
1: but but, but Jaws three. 3D brought us a great actress though, Leah Thompson.
0: Yeah, well no, uh, the Jaws 3D was a great cast. Leia oh, Thompson, it was an
1: awesome, awesome cast. Lou
0: Jr., Dennis Quaid. Yep. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, uh, Simon McCorkendale was not nothing to write home about, but Bess Armstrong was good. <laughs> uh, was, he was terrific.
1: In your opinion, do you think Jaws 3 would have been better if they left it as Jaws 3 and not tried to do the the three the the 3D treatment on it?
0: Um, if there is, uh, he he is gone now, but if there was a producer who was even stingier than Zanuck and Brown, it was Alan Lansberg.
1: Because
0: yeah. on Jaws 2, they spent $28 million to make the sequel, which is okay because Jaws 1 had made so much money, it was worthwhile. But when they got to Jaws 3, they said, you know what, we're we not going to spend $30 million to make the third episode, you know, the third right. sequel. So we'll, we'll farm it out to an independent producer who'll make his own deals. He made his own deals with the Florida Teamsters. You know, he, he, he right. put it all together. And uh, he un- he understood the, the perils of 3D. And we were kind of playing catch up because 3D cameras, nobody has shot anything in 3D for a decade. So we had to kind of reinvent the technology. Uh, luckily, Joe Alves, who directed the movie, understood filmmaking. But Alan Landsberg only understood budget. So when it came time for the climactic shot of Jaws 3D, he refused. Landsberg refused to do a retake because it was a very expensive scene with a controlled roof. Room gets destroyed by the shark underwater and swims into right. it. Oh, yeah. And the footage of the shark approaching, it looks like a big, slow-moving blimp. There's nothing terrifying about it. it should be like an express train coming down the tracks. Yeah. big leisurely whale of a fish kind of swimming in 3D, getting closer and closer. And he could have reshot it. It would have been a very expensive shot to make over, but it would have made the movie a hundred times better because it's a climactic shot of the film. But Lansberg refused to do it over, and the result is very unsatisfying to everybody, to people who worked on it, the actors, and to the audiences. Because the audience gets taken out of the movie at that point.
2: Right. Well, you hear that kind of story a lot, though, of executives and producers and things. They just they don't they don't see the vision. They only care about the money.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's the problem.
1: I don't think we asked Joe this, but I'm going to ask you of this. Whose idea was it to name the fish Bruce? Uh, uh,
0: Steven Spielberg. Steven's lawyer at the time was, was a guy named Bruce Raymer. He's still, he still is lawyer. So, so uh, uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm tampering. Oh, no, okay. you're fine. Right. Um, uh, he was named after a, a Hollywood uh, movie industry lawyer named Bruce Raymer, <laughs> who's still with us.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's funny. Shark's named after a shark. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Now, w- was it an an honor uh, in your mind to? Like, Like when... Finding Nemo came out and the, the the main shark in it is named Bruce. And they said they did it in honor of Jaws. Yeah,
0: uh, so no, I mean, the, the thing about any iconic film and Jaws is one of them. Oh, yeah. Is that they spin off a lot of references and homages and, you know, homage also ripoffs. You know, people take what's success and they see what's successful and they, they you know, take it for themselves or they, you know, if, if they're honorable, they, you know, they make it clear that they're just paying paying respect to it. So, you know, finding right. people, they called the shark Bruce because that was the shark's name. So, uh, you know, when, when you when you do an iconic film or a book or anything that has legs, <laughs> unlike a fish, <laughs> <laughs> when you do anything um, of any permanence, it becomes the, the highest tribute is when it becomes part of the culture. When dialogue from the show becomes what people say to each other. Sometimes people are saying lines from movies that they don't even know were one. From movies. Right. You know, um, it just en- it enters the culture. And Jaws had that kind of influence. It just entered the culture. Has there been a. a
1: oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Has there been an homage or a tribute? or a reference back to the film that you haven't liked that you wish you were able to just talk to him and go can you delete that from any future showings no you
0: know but people are free to do what they want and, and there is a, a point of view that says there's no such thing as bad publicity you know sure, just publicity. Sure. Nope. so if people are still referencing your work 30 40 years after the fact be grateful because yeah. what other movie that came out in 75 is still you know in our consciousness Bonnie and Clyde made. Maybe. yeah right uh, uh, Chinatown yeah you know some well, of the some, some of the great movies of the 70s
1: unfortunately uh, most of the most of the movies that came out in 75 I didn't watch until later because I was only five yeah. at the time well,
0: godfather God ah. I'm, I'm gonna take him an off he can't refuse you know and yeah, all, all that stuff becomes part of the culture so and that's that's, uh, that's when you know that you're if you're in the popular arts if you're in mass media if you're writing for an audience as those of us or in television when movies are, we write for an audience. We don't write for ourselves. Novelists, poets, painters, sculptors, they create for themselves. We create for an audience. It's part of the equation. Until, until it's in front of people, right. work is incomplete. So right. once you get out in front of the people and they react and they absorb it and they take they take from it what they will, then uh, you, you know you pray that they're talking about it and making references to it and stealing lines of dialogue because that means you've made an impression. Okay. Yep. Mm. Go ahead, so
2: is is uh, is there? I've always wondered: is there a big difference uh, in writing for TV versus writing for movies? Is one easier than the other one, or
0: they 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 both have their advantages. When you write for the movies, you only have to please the director, the producers, and maybe a star. who's not a whole lot, right. and uh, and you get you know you get their input, and then you do the work. Um, when you write in television, it is such a voracious consumer or a, a product that you know you write a show, you shoot it, it goes up. And the Monday morning you're working on next week's show. You know you just there's no no time to breathe and, and take a. There is now there is more time because they have short seasons and short episodes. But when I was coming up in the three network universe, if you were doing a weekly television show, you were doing twenty six or twenty nine episodes a year. So you were oh, writing right, yeah. every minute, and you didn't yep. have time. You know you just you were lucky to get a show you know a script finalized in time for the rehearsal. Mm. Uh, shooting uh and and uh in those days there was only three you know three networks there's only a a fixed number of shows and in movies the director was god king and you had to please the director no more than anybody Uh, but in television the writer was god king whoever created the show Mm. could push the director around tell the director to shut up and do things his way or her way so Interesting. There, there, were, there were trade-offs. You know, in, in television, you had more creativity. And now the best writing being done in scripted media is in television. It's in the reverse. Right. I, and when, when I did Jaws, if you were laboring in television, you were kind of struggling and you were waiting to waiting for your big break to come, which would have been a feature film. And Jaws was my first produced feature. Uh, I had written, I got paid for a couple other feature films, but none of them got produced. So um, we aspired to feature films. Now the best writing that's being done, is being done in television, and there's like 500 scripted shows. You can't see them all. I mean, right. <laughs> I know we've thanks tried. To, <laughs> thanks to the pandemic, I'm trying to catch up, but there's just—I mean, this. I'm binge watching French television series because they're just—they're—they're they're even better than American series. Oh wow! Oh wow! So, hmm. um, you know, you uh, and 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 they're they're brilliant. So you know, you, you, there's a lot of quality work being done these days.
1: Right. Mm, now, yeah. You. you have have worn many hats during your career, writer, producer, director. Is there one, or I'm sorry, writer, actor, director? Uh, you did some producing as well. Yeah. Um, did you favor one over the other, or did it matter to you?
0: Well, the most fun and the easiest is acting. Okay. You know, you, don't, you just show up, and they take you to your dressing room, they show you where to stand, they show you where to mm-hmm. get coffee, they bring you treats, and then when it's time to go to the set, some AD comes and knocks on your door and says, we're ready for you, Mr. Gottlieb, and then you walk to the set, and you meet the other actors, and you say the words, and you go home at the end of the day, you don't have to cut it together, you don't have to worry about continuity, you don't have to worry about network notes, you just go in and do your job. Right. I, it's different if you're a star and you're carrying a whole series, but I, that's not me, I was just a dead day player. So day player's life and features in, in television is, you know, a piece of cake. And you get some public notoriety because your face is on the screen. Um, after that, directing is fun because everybody listens to you and you get to make all the decisions unless you're in television. But in television, you can be a show runner or a creator and have the same influence over the product. So actor, director, producer, it's all ways of maintaining some kind of control.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Looking through through your IMDb, which you asked us if, if we had it pulled up, if we had researched it, um, you were involved with one of my favorite films in the 80s. And to me, the 80s had like I was a big fan of Howard the Duck. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the few. I'm probably one of the 12 that liked it. Yep. <laughs> um, but you were writer and I believe director to me one of the greatest cult hits out there, Caveman. Yes. With Ringo Starr. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and uh and Barbara Bach. Yeah. How did how did that come
0: about? Um, in many ways, it was a traditional Hollywood product. Terman and Foster, a producing team, came to me and said, do you remember 1 million BC? <laughs> and I said, the black and white one or the one with Raquel Wells in a fur bikini? They said, both. I said, yeah, I know that. because well, we want to do 1 million BC, but we want to do it funny. So I said, I think I can do that. <laughs> so I got hired by the studio to develop it. I wrote a couple of drafts. It was, uh, nobody saw my vision. Of it, so Termin and Foster said, "You know, we're thinking it should be more." I mine was more intellectual; it was it was a smarter comedy. And they said, "Well, we want to make it more like Mel Brooks. How would you feel about working with one of Mel's favorite writers, Rudy Deluca?" I knew Rudy from the world of comedy, and I said, "Yeah, I know Rudy. Uh, you know, let me meet with him. We'll talk, and if we have a, a shared vision of any sort, I'll work with him." So Rudy came on board, and we worked together, and we wrote a draft that was more Mel Brooks and less. Woody Allen, and uh, that script eventually got the green light. Now, I, I, when we were making the deal in the first place, I had approval of collaborators, and I was uh, locked in to direct if the picture went forward. So I had the unenviable chore of calling Rudy and saying, "You know, great news, we got a green light." And Rudy <laughs> said, "I'd like to direct it with you." And I had to say, "Well, you know, I don't think that's a good way to make a movie. This was before the Cohen Bros. Right. I think I think you know, a movie should have one direct." the director's guild thinks so too so i'm not going to share directing so rudy was very pissed off because his agents had mistakenly promised him to get him to take the job for short money they said well you they'll, they'll consider you as director so in his mind he thought uh, he a director, got a green light and right. when he got a green light he wasn't approved as director he got very pissy and he was justifiably angry and we didn't talk for a long time after that
1: that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah.
1: So I got to ask, whose idea was it? And, and this is one of my favorite scenes. Whose idea was it for the quote unquote mud pit scene?
0: <laughs> Jeez, I don't remember.
1: Okay. <laughs> now, for for our listeners who don't know, the mud pit scene is everyone finds this giant mud pit. They get in, they're lathering up with the mud. And, and the, the little caveman, the little person caveman comes out, rubbing his back on and goes, ah, cock. And everyone goes right down the line. Kaka, kaka, all the way down. And then the Asian caveman at the very end goes, yeah, shit. (laughs) <laughs> one of my favorite things in the whole film <laughs> i absolutely love that scene
0: that was it was you know it was it was a, a fun movie to shoot we shot it mostly in mexico oh. um, uh, and uh again a great cast you know dennis quaid um yep. mm-hmm. ringo Starr, jack gilford avery Schreiber, Shelley long and yep. Barbara Buck.
1: Yeah. yeah that was a great cast yeah so, uh,
2: is is there? Yeah, but now he- hearing you hearing you describe your original version, I'd kind of like to see that too. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: I somewhere in my stack of papers, there's, there's some early drafts of that. In my version, the the uh, misfit tribe speaks English, and the. Uh, the the Tondas tribe speaks French.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, would, that would be cool. Yeah. Maybe, maybe someone who's listening will, will come to you and see about picking up that one as an option. That'd be
0: awesome. I'm open to all offers.
1: <laughs> um what's outside of Jaws and the Jaws franchise what's been your your favorite project to have worked on I know that's hard because there's so many so many of your babies out there
0: well, the thing that I started doing which was improvisational satirical theater in San Francisco in a group called The Committee which played in yeah. San Francisco for 10 yep. years uh, played in Los Angeles for 3 or 4 years those days of improvising making it up doing 2 shows a night 3 on Saturday working with with a gifted company of of actors and actresses, that was the most fun I've ever had. And I I treasure those years. Uh, Kind of measure all the other experiences against that. Very cool. Because it, it was live theater, it was live performance. You know, you got immediate feedback. If you did it right, you'd, people would laugh and applaud. If you didn't do it right, they'd be quiet, and you, you'd you know that too. Right. But it was it was immediate feedback. It was we were a hit in San Francisco. We were a hit in Los Angeles. Um, you know, it was it was great times, and it was a six. I really
2: I really admire people who do improv because I can't I can't even imagine just having to think that quickly on your feet, and it's very impressive.
0: Well, you know, it, it, it's a it's a learned skill. I mean, no, nobody is born improvising, except maybe Robin Williams,
1: mm, uh, true, true,
0: and John Winters, but. Uh, Oh yes. Uh, like I said, it's a, it's a learned skill. There are exercises and things you can do to, to polish your your faculties for for improvising. Hmm. And uh, you know, if you if you kind of stay true to the basic principles, uh, chances are you'll you'll be successful both with your fellow players and uh, in turn the audience will see a good show. But the beauty of improvisation is when the audience is watching it. Even if you fail, they're part of the process. They're part of the equation. They can see it happen. Oh, yeah. You know, a, a really successful improvisation is indistinguishable from a scripted piece of material that people have been doing for years uh, because it just mm-hmm. flows so naturally and each actor picks up on what the actor before him has, has done and it flows, you know, inexorably toward a, a blackout or a conclusion. And when it doesn't work, at least the audience gets to see the machinery in action. And sometimes, as we know from, you know, paddle wheel steamboats and, and uh, uh, you know, fire engines, you're know, watching the machinery is sometimes as interesting as watching the, the, the product itself. Right. Yeah. You
2: know? Definitely. Yeah.
0: So, you know, yeah. At Epcot, you can, you can see uh, to pick an example. Yeah. You can see the Disney figures walking around and all the the, the things when you're backstage you see the, the things clanking and humming and the gears turning and the actors getting in and out of their costumes and dealing with the kid, the ankle biters, uh, that you yep. out of the sideline. <laughs> yep. You know, there, there's, uh, some charm to that
1: too you, you know my world very well oh yeah definitely yep. you you know my world very well yeah. <laughs> being backstage uh derek you got any other questions for carl um no i don't i, covered no, a lot. I don't think
2: so we've covered yeah. a
1: lot and and i think we may have met the challenge because we never got a it's in the book
0: Right. Well, I I did touch on something. So when you read the book, you will feel you'll hear a few familiar lines. But yes, that's awesome. And you you never, ever asked me, how does it feel to something or other? And I didn't have to. Oh, yeah. That's that's one of the stupidest questions interviewers ever (laughs) ask. What does it feel? I don't know how it feels. I mean, you know, you have to be me to know how it feels. And I don't think about how it feels. I'm more interested in what the issue is or what the problem is or how to solve the problem. So ask me that. You know, don't,
1: don't ask well, me what's it like. I, I'm going to jokingly put a twist on that question. How did the shark feel when you touched it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it felt naturally rough <laughs> it felt, it felt <laughs> <sore> because Joelle <laughs> insisted on finding the right blend of sand to mix with the paint to give the shark the kind of skin that the water would not bead up on the way it beads up on a car.
2: Ooh. Oh, oh, nice. I Never thought about that. I thought foam. about that,
0: yeah. and it was a job to figure out what paint would be that would enable it to move mm. the water like real shark skin. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, that's That's one of of the little problems that nobody ever thinks about. But Joe, the perfectionist designer,
2: gave it a lot of. That's awesome. Well, that goes that goes back to what you were just saying about seeing the machinery behind everything. Yeah, it's that's a fascinating fascinating fact
1: that I didn't know about. Well, I I don't know about you, Derek. I'm a bonus features junkie on DVDs and Blu-rays. I love the bonus features. I if it's a movie I've already seen in the Theater, or might have seen on TV before. I've gotten the the Blu-ray or DVD. As soon as I get it, the first thing I do is I watch the bonus features before I watch the feature mm-hmm. yeah. because I want to know yeah. more about I know behind it. Behind the scenes stuff and everything. I mean, because yep.
0: oh, well, all the all the Jaws Blu-rays have some, have some very yeah. good additional.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the Jaws bonus materials on the DVD when I when I would rent them from Blockbuster okay. before before AMC started yeah. overplaying it on on their network. Work. Um, oh, yeah. But it is it is a film that I, I want to own on Blu ray, and I can't wait to see the new bonus features there. Um,
0: I urge you to get the Blu ray and look at it. I can't wait.
1: Mm. I can't wait to get it. Uh, yeah, I we'll would definitely have to do
0: that. It's out. I think it came out two months ago. Yeah.
1: Dropped. Yeah, the 45th anniversary edition's out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. So I, I just got to get over to Best Buy, which is right down the street, and get it. Um, I had something else I was going to ask or bring up, and it's gone. So we know it's been a great interview because I've lost (laughs) track of of where I was going. Um, You can find Joe's book, The Jaws Log, on Amazon and probably any bookstore that you go to. That's my my book. You said Joe's book. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was probably thinking something (laughs) about Joe. It's Carl's book, folks.
0: Yeah. Joe's book is called Designing Joe's, Joe's, and it's got all the insights that I've talked about and many, many more from his perspective as the guy who designed... The
1: shark. If it tells you just how great this interview has been where I just totally flub and I haven't had a, a major flub with a great interview in a long while. So that's a good sign. Um, a good flub is a great sign is a great interview with us. Check out Carl's book on Amazon and anywhere you get books, be it Barnes and Noble's Books a Million. Uh, it's a great looking book. I plan on getting it as well to go with my DVD or actually with my Blu-ray. Um, mm. Where can people find you online, Carl?
0: I don't have that much of an online presence. I'm on Facebook. I respond to texts and emails and messages. Uh, I you know I, I check my online. You know I wake up early. Morning. I look at uh, what's on, you know what's come up. I check my emails. Uh, I don't have much of an appetite for spam, and most of what you know. Uh, first, my first task is to prune my emails down to a manageable number by discarding or you know trashing the, the irrelevant. But uh, there, there's a website that I have, there's a thing called, the, uh, I think it's jawslog.com or jawswriter.com, one of those two. But it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a static website. Got a couple of links to the Amazon. Right. You know, but I I, I'm, I I don't spend a lot of time online. That's not a bad thing. Oh, no, I know. It's, 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 and also, you know, I'm, I'm not from the, that generation. I would rather read or sleep.
1: I'm right there with you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Well, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, It's been great. Yeah, honestly, it's been awesome. Love the stories. Love um, being able to talk about you know caveman talk a little the jerk and. Uh, You could be your own Jeopardy! category. (laughs) Um, So, thank you again for for joining us. It was our honor and pleasure to have you on.
0: Okay, I'm I'm happy to be able to help out. I hope hope you get a zillion viewers and broadcast my name and likeness around the globe so that uh, when I decide that I can travel again and European fan conventions want to pay me to come over, I'll be happy to go. And I'm hoping hoping I'll be healthy enough to go.
1: Well, we were and we were talking with with David um and he was saying in five years, he wants to do, he, he wants to be involved in bringing a, a, JAWS convention back up to the Martha Javinia area, area. Oh yeah.
2: That's
1: right. Um, hopefully we'll get I a chance. That. Hopefully we'll get a chance to meet you there because we want to come up and help be a part of that.
0: Well, I'll be in mystic Connecticut at Ooh. the end of October.
1: I love mystic.
0: There's a, there's a fan show there. I don't have the exact name of it. It's a mystic. It's, it's a new con. It's a new uh, two or three years old. It's a fan kind con-
1: to look into that.
0: Yeah. Um, let me, let me see if I can find
1: it here. You'll have to rep us there, Derek, and, and go to the show. Bring bring Carl a cup of coffee. Yeah. Mm. Uh,
0: Let's see. Find it. Let's see. Mystic fan show in October.
1: Hmm. Mystic shit. I, I'm surprised that they they're doing they're still doing the show. They haven't canceled yet. So that's a that's a good sign. That's a great actually. It's a great sign. Let's
0: see. Uh, maybe it's in my email. Okay. It's called the Mystic Film Festival. Ah. Interesting. Yeah, Mystic Film Festival, Mystic, Connecticut, October 24th and 25th this year. Oh,
1: that's very cool.
0: So I'll be there most likely. Awesome. If, if my health is good.
1: Oh, hopefully Derek will be able to meet you there. Mm-hmm.
0: If I'll, he's be driving, there. I'll be driving oh, up to New York. If I was flying into uh, to Providence, I'd be after quarantine for 14 days.
1: Oh, oh yeah. don't uh, right.
0: quarantine. Connecticut doesn't, especially if you're driving. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. You know, if when you when you're, Uh, We were talking about things that I'd like to promote. I will promote my appearance at the Mystic Film Festival, October 25th this year. Look for me there.
1: Awesome! So check it out. Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you again for coming on. Again, it's it's been our honor and pleasure uh, to talk to to such a great legend.
0: Thanks. I'm I'm glad we got together.
1: Thank you. So on that note, want to know more?
0: So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weebie Geeks production.